Dichter Hadina Pabuni, the Bocasto Mescla Brion Druth, Ostias Genev, Sauve Berryman. Hello and welcome everyone to the Mescla Brion Druth podcasts, hosted by me, Sauve Berryman. Mescla Brion Druth is a multi platform project using sculpture making and conversation to explore contemporary Cornish cultural identity. Through workshops, podcasts, a symposium and an exhibition, the project invites people to share their experiences of identity and Cornwall and their views on Cornish culture and its relationship to land, language, heritage, tourism, the Cornish diaspora and much, much more. These podcasts record conversations with guests whose research or lived experience touches on the project themes. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed are the speaker's own. All conversations are carried out with a spirit of generosity and openness, creating space for the discussions to twist and turn. And I'm very grateful to all who have taken part. For this ninth podcast, I visit Cornwall-based songwriter, vocalist, choir leader, researcher and writer Angeline Morrison for a conversation at her home with a small intervention from her cat. Angeline is actively concerned with raising awareness about the hidden historic black presence in the UK and has recently released her acclaimed album, The Sorrow Songs, Folk Songs of Black British Experience on Topic Records. We join the conversation with Angeline about to tell us about her research for this album. Gwenic Ambers, Hui Dom Loan Hegos Lois Orto. I hope you enjoy listening. Hi, Angeline. Hi, Thank so you so much for. Um, joining me for a Mescla podcast and for hosting me in your cosy kitchen on this blowy day where we have a host of chocolate and biscuits. We've got so much chocolate and so many biscuits. <laughs> Thank you for having me and for this lovely badge. Sobe's just given me a beautiful enamelled Mescla badge. Yes, we're both sporting our Mescla we badge. Are. I might put, take a photo of them for the uh, website. So, um, Angeline, I invited you to be uh, part of my Mescla podcast programme um, because of your research project, which did that begin in 2021, 2020, when you first told me about it? Probably 2020, that was when mm-hmm. the idea came, mm-hmm. the project. Um, and it has now become an album. Yes. So exciting. It's an album that is going to be released on October 7th on Topic Records, which is a total dream come true. That's like the Motown records of folk music. Um, And the album is called The Sorrow Songs, subtitle Folk Songs of Black British Experience. Cool. I'm just really (laughs) excited about it. I can't wait. I can't wait. I've, I've actually, I've already ordered it. Have you? Like top fan. Wow. Oh, thank you. That's so exciting. Well, there's two singles out at the moment that you can stream and download. Um, I can tell you about those later if you like. What yeah. would you like to talk about first? Well, first, I would like you to, if you wouldn't mind, just... Um, so 
one of the things that I'm interested in is this sort of term I use, which um, fractured cultures and this idea of cultures um, becoming, uh, yeah, broken up and then how fragments of culture come together and it felt to me when you first told me about your projects and your research funding that you'd got for it um it felt I was super excited for you anyway and about the whole project but also from a selfish perspective because I was like brilliant (laughs) (laughs) I'm really interested in this subject so um, perhaps you could tell us a bit about um, the research you've been doing mm. and sort of what led you to produce this work. Yeah, happy to. Well, the, the, the seeds of the project were really sown a very long time ago um, because I've been, I've been a real lover of English folk song and UK like um, folk music in general, the, the folk and traditional music of these islands. I've, I've always loved it. And from going to to folk clubs and as a sort of a older child and a teenager, I figured out okay, this is where you go if you want to hear the songs and people will sing unaccompanied. I absolutely love unaccompanied singing. There's just something really magical for me about the unaccompanied human voice. It feels so immediate and so raw and and at the same time it's earthy and it's there's also something ethereal and kind of almost disembodied about it which seems like a strange thing to say about something that is coming out of a human body but nevertheless there is just something so alluring for me about the unaccompanied voice and and all the cadences that you get in traditional mm-hmm. um, UK song and music um, the melodies the wonderful turns of phrase and use of language and the stories um, and the emotive depths that some of these songs can take you to. So loving all of that I also couldn't help but notice that there weren't any other black people ever in any of the clubs that I went to. There were no black performers on the stage and no other performers of colour either, actually. It wasn't just that there was an absence of people from the African diaspora. It was that there was a general absence of people of colour. And the scene is extremely warm and friendly and welcoming. So I just, I think it's really important for me to say this, that I was never made to feel anything other than welcome. And people in folk clubs are brilliant at welcoming you. They love to see new people there. and they. They love to share their love of the music with other people who also love the music. So that was never an issue. But the issue was that I felt really like the odd one out, always. To the point where it made me think, well, can I ever really be a folk singer? Because the other way, you know, as a child and a young person, you're, you're looking for people who remind you of yourself in the areas that you want to go into. You want, you know, I didn't used to think that girls could be vets, because whenever we took the cat to the vet, the veterinary nurse was always female, and the receptionist was always a woman at the various different vet surgeries that we went to, and the vet was always a man. I never saw a woman vet, so I deduced from that as a child that girls can't be vets. Um, And, you know, children will, will make these conclusions, and I just never thought that it was a possibility for me to be a folk singer. However however much I love the music and however many songs I I learn and sing to myself. 
Um, and I began to think about my own kind of relationship to this music and my own feeling of belonging here in, in these islands, in, in England in particular where I grew up. Um, and the fact that as someone who is, I'm descended from enslaved African people who were trafficked to the Caribbean and, uh, and I'm also descended from, from white people um, on one side of my family from um, Hebridean Scots. So my heritage is mixed and my experiences have been those of blackness because of mm. the because of the way I look. I, 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 I look more black than anything and I'm very happy to identify as, as, as a black woman and I sometimes describe myself as brown as well. Um, but I'm going a bit off topic there, aren't I? Sorry about that. <laughs> Quite non-linear. No, I think I think it's really valuable because um, anyway, all these conversations are non-linear, and um, it's important context for for the work that you're making anyway, and um, this project in particular. So um, I think it's it's really valuable and generous of you to share. Oh, so well, thank you. <laughs> My favourite conversations are the non-linear ones. So yes. I'm happy that we've got that in common. Hopefully everybody <laughs> listening, or at least some of the people listening, will also be cool with that. Um, so I was always looking for people like me in the songs. And there's, there's a song called The Brown Girl. Mm -hmm. It's a traditional song. I made a recording of it recently. And I first heard this... Um, as a, and when I was in my early teens, and I heard Martin Carthy singing it, the wonderful, amazing Martin Carthy, and um, he'd set it to a traditional tune called Sweet Kitty, and the song starts off, I'm as brown as brown can be, I have eyes black as slow, so it's really clear this girl has got dark skin and black eyes, and the general interpretation that's always, always, always given for old songs or old poems or old stories where somebody is, des is described as being brown or having brown skin. Um, the explanation is is that this is uh, a white person who's been out in the sun. So in the context of this song, the girl is rejected by her false lover, and he's, he's really specific in the rejection. He does like the, the ancient equivalent of a text dumping. So he, said, he writes her a letter from town, and he says, I don't want anything to do with you anymore because you are so brown. So he's highly specific about the reasons right. that he's dumping her. He's gone to town, he's got ideas above his station, he wants he wants some refined girl with very pale skin because um, in terms of the ever-changing standards of, of beauty that we're all expected to live up to, um, at certain points um, in history in, in, in England, for to have a white person with suntan skin was considered unattractive because it was synonymous with being of a lower class or a lower social standing that you had to work and you had to work outside so you were probably a member of the labouring classes mm -hmm. and that's generally the way that this um, song is interpreted and you know that's perfectly fair enough that could be right but I wondered if there was more to it or there might be more possible explanations and I tended to keep this to myself for many years because people would always contradict you and say, well, there weren't any black people in this country before about 1948, before Windrush. This is a, such a common misconception. Even now, I meet people, and some of these people are very learned. Some of these people are, like, 
scholars whose opinion I would respect in, in, in other things, but, um, but in this thing they will contradict me and say, no, no, you're mistaken, there were no black people. And this is such a... I'm so interested in the fact that this misconception remains quite widespread, even though there have been quite a lot of publications about this. Um, and there's, there's been, recently there have been TV shows and radio shows about the history of black people in these islands, the history of black music in Europe. There's so much that you can find. None, it's all in the public domain. None of it's actually hidden. If you want to find out about it, it's there. But yet there is still quite a, quite a widespread level of, of, of misconception mm. about the historic black presence. People seem to, I say people, a lot of people seem to see people of the African diaspora in particular as, as a recent addition to UK society and culture. And sometimes people will make a concession and they'll say, oh yeah, well, you know, there were slaves here. There were some people who would bring their enslaved um, people uh, to these islands with them. And um, in Cornwall, there are many um, houses where enslaved African people were living with, with, the, with those who owned them. Um, and we have photographs, photographic evidence of this from the probably the mid to late 19th century when photography became you know, much more widespread. Um, but it's really important to remember that there were free black people. Mm. There were free black people in these islands and not just in the port cities, not just in the towns, in the countryside, everywhere. We don't really know too much about numbers and concentration, <coughs> but there would have been, there would absolutely have been vast areas of the UK where there were no people of colour at all and where people would be born and live and die and they would never meet a person of colour. That's, that's true, but there were, also, there were also areas where there would have been, you know, a significant number, a significant minority of people of colour. Mm. I mean, th and this is the truth. We have, we have evidence for this. I'm not making it up. Um, if people are interested in researching it, they can. The information is right there. It feels so, like um, there's a convenient like I use the term in sort of inverted commas, um, like a narrative or story being told there that is about quite, quite actually whitewashing <laughs> a, a, a history. Um, and um, like, I don't know to what ends, but yeah, it's um, it, because it's not simply about ignorance of history, is it? It's almost mm. like quite a, almost emotional sort of denial. Well, there's there are a specific choices have been made about which histories are told. Mm -hmm. Put it that way, and I think that this is probably a feature of most histories that specific choices are made about what is told and what is retained. Um, and what is conveniently forgotten or considered not worthy of recording. And that may be for any number of reasons. But those who are recording the histories will, will always be making choices, won't they, about what they consider to be important to keep and what they don't consider to be important to keep. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I, um, I tend to try not to use the term whitewash. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Because 
because then you always have to say no pun intended or something. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but it is an appropriate term. It absolutely is appropriate for what happened. And yes, it's, it's appropriate. So um, in terms of the, the evolution and the journey of, of my idea for this album, that song, The Brown Girl, was really important. So I, I, I structured a whole album of traditional song around it, which, which I released on May Day of this year, on May 1st. Um, and that song was so meaningful to me as a as a teenage folkie because I really was the only one, certainly the only one that I knew. I know now that I was not absolutely not the only one, but at the time I knew no other black or brown uh, folkies of any age, let alone uh, teenage folkies. Um, and so that, that song was so meaningful to me because it was, I've described it as a talisman. And it really did have that kind of magical significance because I was able to imagine into that song a historic um, black heroine mm-hmm. or a heroine who at least was brown because she had a black ancestor. Like she may not have been, uh, you know, the daughter of two displaced African people. She may have had an African grandparent or great grandparent or something and was considered to be brown with eyes black or slow because of that. Maybe she was East Asian, maybe she was South Asian, you know, there are all sorts of possibilities. But I just kept that in my heart and every time I sang that song I was singing the the heroine as this young woman of colour that she was in my imagination. So I was able to to do my own restoring and that's the word I use for the album. It's a work of restoring. I was able to do my own personal restoring and this was before I had ever learned the truth about the historic black presence in these islands. So that kind of, that song kept me going before I learned the truth. Learning the truth was extraordinary. Learning the truth that, you know, I just kept thinking to myself, we do belong here. We really do belong here. Since Roman times. And that's and I only say that because that's as far back as, as records go. Um, and you uncovered this, this truth, these, the evidence, again, I use sort of advisedly, um, through the period of research that you carried out in the making of this work. Yes, yes, I did. Um, I mean, I, 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 came to, I came to a knowledge um, about... The historic nature of the black presence in these islands a few years before actually but, mm-hmm. but it was it, it was during during the aftermath of George Floyd's murder that the ideas really started to coalesce in my head and I began to put everything together and I began to think well okay there given the fact that I now know for certain that black people and other people of color were living in these islands alongside white people, working with them, not sometimes working for them, sometimes being owned by them, but not exclusively. And they were present. So why aren't there any traditional songs that mention them? So that was that was the first thing I, I, I thought to myself, why don't we have given given that we do have a history of, of you know a black presence in this country why do we not have a, a body of folk song that is the equivalent to the spirituals of America and all the African-American folk songs which 
are so powerful and so important as a container for that experience um, and that kind of can provide healing and can provide a place to to give voice to things which are really unspeakable you don't have anything like that and so of course there are you know there are not exact equivalents so because of because of practical things like climate um, the the plantations where you would have very big populations of this of of trafficked and enslaved african people you could have those in places like the united states you couldn't have them in the united kingdom because we don't have the climate to grow the crops and so on so the concentration of people of color in these islands would have been a lot smaller and um these ancestors are likely to have been more dispersed so all of these things have an effect on the common songs that they might sing. But there is absolutely no way that there's no historic black music in these islands. That's mm. just not even possible. Humans, wherever they go in the world, they create music, they bring music, they share music. It's a human trait. So I am... Um, when I next get a moment, um, <laughs> I'm going to carry on with this research, but I'm going to be specifically looking... For the historic black music of these islands mm. because this project started out with my with exactly that i was looking for the historic black folk music of these islands and what i was able to find and my research is ongoing and I, i'm really clear about this in my interviews it, it's ongoing because i wanted to get on with the composition so i've had to take a bit of a break from the research but what I was able to find, what I have been able to find so far, is songs with references to black people, but they're clearly not written by black people unless they were, you know, commissioned, mm -hmm. unless, you know, a, a black um, broadside writer perhaps was, was, you know, paid to compose something. Like, write a story about this, you know. If you're writing to order, then you can't, um, then you've got to write what you're told. But there is no possible way that we do not have historic black folk music that is uh, that belongs to the UK. So um, its presence within records or archives or whatever is again comes down to those the sort of gatekeepers of those records mm. and archives mm. so who makes the choice of what what is saved um, or preserved and what isn't? Yes, very much so, very much so. And archives and records or records are always very carefully um, gate-kept mm -hmm. and curated. And also, you know, it's difficult, it's difficult to search them as well because um, songs which are authentically of black origin, folk songs, may not reference blackness at all. So a lot of these songs may survive but without any reference to the fact that they were of black origin do you see what i mean mm -hmm. so for example yeah. a lot of the spirituals and um and, and the secular african-american folk songs that we have they don't all make reference to to blackness or to brown skin or to any of those things but yet they are folk songs of black origin so that's one reason one possible reason why it might be difficult to locate them um but also the um, yeah they, they may not have been collected um, they may not have been considered worth recording there are many many possible reasons mm -hmm. yes yeah, so when when many of the traditional songs that we have now were collected in the what's called the first folk revival of the late nineteenth and early twentieth century 
Um, there was a great sense of, of nationalistic pride. England was, was known as the land without song. Um, other European countries were very proud of their singing traditions and their traditional music, and it was generally considered that England did not have a traditional music of its own at that point. It's really difficult to imagine now because everyone alive today is, is I think, very aware of, of the English folk tradition, even if they're not, you know, really like plugged into the music and engaged with it, and even if they're not interested in it, they know it's there. They know that we have a, a, a really long-standing and fascinating tradition of, of folk music and folk song um, that's comparable with anywhere else in the world. But um, so at the time when 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 the big collections were happening, uh, there was definitely a feeling of creating a sense of Englishness or finding finding these songs which would then um, be a, a signifier of the of that purity or that authentic notion of Englishness. I see. Yeah. And uh, and and there was also. Um, a sense that the the uh, in the first folk revival of the late nineteenth early twentieth century there, there was a a sense that the most authentic version of Englishness would be found in the rural poor the rural poor of of England would right. would be the people who would be the most the most pure the most kind of um, authentic uh, untainted by Civilization and education and all of those things, close to nature. There was all all of these all of these ideas were really popular in culture at the time. So mm -hmm. it's no coincidence that the huge body of song that we're lucky enough to have, and you know, respect to those collectors for finding and preserving those songs and studying them and allowing us to have them all. Um, but it's really important to remember that they were collected in a particular cultural context, and that has had an effect. So then thinking about authenticity and um, sort of rebuilding things, rebuilding stories that aren't, um, that haven't been recorded or kept. Um, now, um, somebody else who's a, another podcast guest has spoken about um, the building of, that it's totally fine to build things from these fractured, build anew from the fractured sort of moments that we can collect because that's what might be left from someone else having fractured it. Mm. <laughs> um, so that rebuilding, and I, I sort of vision this as like a rebuilding of a pot that might have some sort of broken spaces in it and then you could perhaps make another bit of clay or fill it in mm. you know mm. um and uh th that seems to me to be quite a fair um a fair and i'm doing my own rambling now ramble, that <laughs> ramble away that's a folk song actually <laughs> yeah I, lo I love that analogy um of the pot i i, I I've been thinking about all the ways that we can piece back together that which has been shattered over the course of nearly 500 years. And and that mending of pottery, mending is, is the metaphor that I come back to all the time, mending. It's got to be a work of mending. And when you watch spiders mending their webs, 
that's really that's really instructive. I love that. They take something that's been broken and they remake it and it might be slightly wonky but it's a thing of beauty and it was remade with with loving attention and um, and they just the spider will just take as long as it takes to do that to do that reworking and that mending just take as long as it takes because if something has been broken for nearly 500 years you, you will not be able to fix that thing instantly it mm. will take a really long time to mend that and you don't know how it will look when it's mended as well it's interesting thinking about the spider also just in that um, going back to the sort of bodily moment mm. that um, there's something about it seems to me that that uh, mending needing to take place um, over a period of time that spans some generational <laughs> bodies mm. um, with the, the yeah with elements perhaps being a little bit fixed and then going back and fixing them some more um, yeah. Yeah, that's lovely. <laughs> I really like that. Um, and um, do you then, like another thing that was spoken about, um, I spoke about with someone else recently, was around the notion of responsibility. So mm. you're an artist, you're a contemporary artist in the 21st century, um, and um, you're very good at it as well. Yeah. <laughs> you too. <laughs> and then um do you feel a sense of responsibility about making this work I mean it's important for you as an individual um it feels to me like it's also a gift yes I absolutely feel that it's and all of those things that you say are true it's really important to me personally um and it's no coincidence that um that this work came through me with my particular set of experiences um, and my particular relationship both to my um, enslaved African ancestors and to my um, embodied life in these islands that I, I feel like I feel like I have a notion of responsibility to my African ancestors I really do and I feel that as a descendant of enslaved African people I feel like I I have a responsibility to give voice to the truth of the presence of these ancestors in these lands here because that's a thing that that is is very present in discourses about race about belonging and the there is an assumption that if somebody has brown skin or black skin, or if they look a bit different in any way, that um, and they're present here in these islands, that they don't really belong, or they must have come here from somewhere. Well, everybody came here from somewhere. I mean, really. <laughs> You'd have to work very, very, very hard to find someone, whatever they look like, you would have to work really hard to find somebody whose heritage is not mixed in some way. Mm-hmm. The history of humanity is a history of movement around the globe for a very for various reasons. So I'm really interested in that, in all of those notions about about belonging and about land and about presence, um, because that suggestion that if you have 
black skin or brown skin, then obviously you don't belong here in these islands is, is something that I'm, I'm specifically shining a light on mm-hmm. and, and showing that it isn't true. And um, I wondered then about, there's something there as well about the folk tradition being very much connected to um, rural situations as well. And that rural, I think about um, the sort of, the gaze upon the rural is one that paints it much as you described earlier as this sort of white working person on the land Mm. sort of pastoral with you know maybe a beautiful working class maiden tilling a field in the corner definitely the But um, that that sort of there's so much invested in that picturesque, mm. I sort of ideal again inverted commas, um, that has been sold for now generations. There's a continued investment in it. Yeah. Um, and linking to tourism a bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just thinking about about the holiday industry. Yes. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that very much sort of um, British rural tourism is um, sold from a nostalgia, a white nostalgia perspective, this kind of false reality of the rural being a white space and this is sort of, again, inverted commas, like traditional Britain and obviously we're in Cornwall and Mescla is a project that's looking at Cornish contemporary identity um, and it feels that that is very much the case and a problematic case in, um, in, in Cornwall so um, yeah the work that you're doing is also very much challenging that specific view as well not only of these islands in 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 its total but of that rural experience and who belongs within that rural Mm. picture very much yes my 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 restoring is absolutely about that um although not all of the songs are set um in a in a rural um like narrative but i was i was really interested when you were talking because that that notion is really powerful, that notion of the rural, um, the soul of a nation belonging to its rural poor. It's so powerful that you even hear people saying, you know, if, the, if, if someone is, is, is talking about having gone on holiday, for example, let's say they went to Greece, I don't know, and somebody might say to them, well, did you visit the real Greece? Meaning, did you just stay in cities or did you actually mm. go out to the rural areas and see what it's really like? And so that to this day there is, I think, an association, and it might be unconscious, but it's powerful and it persists, that association of the rural experience, anywhere you go in the world, being an authentic experience, and the urban experience, which involves technology and education and things like that, um, it's those things are seen somehow as less authentic and 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 you know 
an addition, an unnecessary addition, or things that take us away from nature and away from the reality of who we are. Those, are, those notions are really persistent. They, they, they didn't, that those notions were not invented by the folk song collectors in the first folk revival, but they did hook into them because those, those philosophies were, were very, very powerful, particularly at the time. And, and Cecil Sharp, who was one of the key collectors, and he collected so very many songs, um, thousands of songs he collected personally, um, he was very clear that he was looking for the soul of the English people. He wanted songs which represented the the soul or the truth or the heart. He did use the word soul, S-O-U-L, um, <laughs> of, of, of Englishness. He was really looking for something that embodied Englishness um, and was, you know, the, in, in modern parlance, we might say that the folk songs were branded in a particular way and that and that, that branding was very successful. Um, and generally speaking, and I include myself in this, when we've got when we've got a particular agenda, and everybody has an agenda, don't they? Mm. Whatever we're doing, everyone's got an agenda, but generally speaking we're not aware of our agendas, are we? Or awareness of agenda is is something that you have to be mindful of. I try my best to be mindful of it. I don't always. I know what you mean. No. It's really important to be to be mindful of it as well. Um, yeah, but uh, but the early collectors of folk songs, um, I think they were very very heavily influenced by by the the cultural turn at the time, which was. You know, people in, in, in England in particular were very hungry for um, for a body of song that represented Englishness. It was really meaningful for them. So this was um, late 19th century, mm. early 20th mm. century. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, the way people are really rude about English cooking nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> it was the same about music <laughs> back then. And, um, I mean, that was when the sort of arts and crafts movement was sort of coming about as well. And again, part of that sort of fetish around the, the purity of hands labour. And interestingly, at the turn of the recent millennium, we also had this surge of sort of new interest in kind of craft and hands making um, and like knitting circles coming about again, you know, mm. stitch and bitch or whatever. So, um, I suppose just thinking about where we are, where we are based, we're based in Cornwall. Um, do you see like a relevance, a particular relevance to this work that you're doing or the content of this research to um, Cornish cultural identity, the identity of people within Cornwall? Hmm. That's a very interesting question. Um, for many reasons, right? So I'm going to start by explaining what the album is doing and then and then I'm going to move on to tell you something that happened recently on Twitter that has to do with Cornwall um, and uh, yeah, and a couple of things to do with the album that have to do with Cornwall. So first of all, the, the Sorrow Songs album is the work of restoring. I used that word earlier. I use it specifically about this album because the the true story of, of of black people living here has has you know been forgotten or 
written out or airbrushed out or whatever. So I'm restoring the, the, the real lives and partly imagined lives also because sometimes there isn't that much detail available and as a songwriter you think, hooray, now I can make some stuff up. Um, I'm restoring them back into the folk songs of these islands. So I'm very, I'm very aware, I can't write a, a, a folk song. Uh, I, well, I can write a song in the folk style, but obviously I'm writing brand new songs and I'm composing them. So uh, I'm aware that I cannot write a traditional song, but what I can do is make a gift to the folk community of a body of songs which are about the experiences and lives of real real black historic characters in these islands. I say historic, there's a couple of examples from the 20th century, so that's not too long ago. Um, so that's the purpose of the album. And you, you, you mentioned a gift before, and it is. It's a, it's a gift to my ancestors, and it's also a gift to the folk community now. That's the way I see it. But my biggest dream for the album is that people will want to sing the songs, and the ancestors will be remembered, and... Hopefully I'll be doing something positive for the folk community as well because they'll have this, you know, some new songs to sing about subject, subject matter and people who weren't previously present in the songs. Do you mind if I let the cat in? He's been very Oh, loud. no, please do. Very loud. <laughs> Come on in, Ted. Hello. So that's so that's love what the cats. album. I love cats, too. <laughs> cats are the best, aren't they? <laughs> they are I love them. <laughs> I want to collect more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so time to go out again. Time to go out again. He just likes to know he's the boss. That's all. He just wants to know that he's the most important person in the household. Okay, so on Twitter, about two days ago, no, about more than that, about three days ago, I saw. Um, a response to my pinned tweet. It was very, it was very interesting. Um, someone had, um, someone was was challenging the the sort of worthwhileness of this project because um, Topic Records had described me as a Cornwall-based <coughs> songwriter, which is true. That's that's what I am. Um, so, so this person who had tweeted. Um, was was questioning what I could possibly have to say of value about black British experience from living in Cornwall because this person said that in there and this was a black person who was tweeting and they said that the people that they knew who had moved to Cornwall so presumably this person was writing from elsewhere or Devon had done so in order to ingratiate themselves with white people I'm trying to remember exactly what he said um, and I was really I, I didn't know how to respond to this for ages. I thought, okay, well maybe. Yeah, you know, I just I, I I didn't understand this um, this person's notion that because I because I live in Cornwall, it must mean that because there are so few black people here, and statistically Cornwall is the most um, has the highest percentage of of, of white-bodied people. In the whole of the UK, that's that's a statistic. Oh right, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, so this person has some black friends, and they've moved to Devon and Cornwall. And uh, this, as far as the uh, the tweeter is concerned, they did that so that they could ingratiate themselves with white people and, and or whatever. 
And I thought, I just, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I didn't know how to respond. In the end, I was, I, I responded very factually with what the album is about. Um, and I said, there are two stories from Cornwall on the album, the rest are from elsewhere in the UK. Um, and Cornwall, and this, this is, you know, the second part of my response. I said, Cornwall has a very interesting and often hidden black history. Um, and that's the truth. And people don't know about it. Mm. People forget. People remember that Liverpool, Bristol, Cardiff, London, people are very um, aware of these cities as big, important international port cities. And so people are quite happy to accept that there will be a black presence in these places. So this is, this is a, a, a history that has... Again, this is this is a is a real and true history that is very easy to find out about. But in terms of contemporary consciousness, people forget about that. People see Cornwall as this rural idyll, which is, I guess, part of the tourist industry myth. And people forget about Cornwall as a county that had two extremely active international port cities and a mining industry. Um, they just think about the, the rural white spaces. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting how this perception of Cornwall has overridden all the other truths of Cornwall. Isn't that interesting? Mm. People just want to think about the, the rural white idyll here. So that's fascinating. So two of my Two of the, the stories on, on my album are based in Cornwall, well one's Cornwall, one's Isles of Scilly. Um, I decided not to write about Joseph Emedy, the famous violinist, for the simple reason that he's already, I wouldn't say he is well known, but in terms of Cornish black history, a lot of people around the world know about Joseph Emedy, and I wanted to see if I could write about people who are not well known. That was one of the things that I wanted to do. Um, and what's what's very interesting is I've found quite a lot of photographs of black people in Cornwall, and we're talking about you know probably eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties maybe. Um, the Red Ruth photographer J. F. Moody seemed to photograph quite a lot of black people. They a lot of them have been identified um, as belonging to the Rose family. Um, and the one who I was particularly interested in, and there's a photograph of him, I didn't get permission to use this photograph on the album, but I just want to tell everybody, if you Google Evaristo Muchavela, you will find a picture of the actual man whom this story is about. I, I wanted to use his, his picture so much on the album, but I, I just couldn't get the permission. Um, but he's photographed by J.F. Moody of Red Ruth. And the story is, what's so extraordinary about his story is that he was owned by a Cornish man named Thomas Johns, and he was a miner. Thomas Johns was not one of the wealthy elite at all. Um, he was a, a regular guy who worked very, very hard as a copper and tin miner, saved his money, and he went to Brazil, where he bought a seven-year-old African boy who had been trafficked from Mozambique, and that was Everesto Muchavela. And they, they uh, lived together for many years in Brazil. We don't really know anything about that chapter of their history, but it seems 
from what little we do know, that Thomas Johns treated Everest Mochavela well. It seems that even though he was his legal owner, which is highly problematic, even though he purchased a seven-year-old boy, highly problematic, but he does seem to have been kind to him. So what we know is that Everesto was given a choice. Um, by this time, uh, Thomas Johns was an older man and Everesto was a young man. So Thomas Johns became very unwell in Brazil and he knew that he was going to die and he wanted to die in Cornwall. So he gave Everesto a choice and he said, you can come back with me to Cornwall because I want to die there or you can stay on in Brazil on your own and I will give you your freedom. So he offered him his freedom and Everesto apparently chose to come back to Cornwall with his master. And by this point, um, it was no longer legal to own an enslaved person on UK soil, so he had to be reclassified as a servant. Um, and uh, Everesto looked after Thomas, and when Thomas Johns died, or before he died, I should say, he made arrangements so that Everesto would have somewhere to live and could train as a cabinet maker. And he apparently had his cabinet making shop in Rodruth. He ran his own business and he was apparently, you know, quite well liked in the community. Um, he died in 1868 and he is buried in the same grave as the man who owned him. Oh, they wow. were buried together in the exact same grave in Wendron Cemetery. Isn't that mind-blowing? It is. But there would be so much power like individual power in being taught these histories oh absolutely from a young age can you imagine how amazing <laughs> it would be to have to know to know your own history know the history of your people yeah in what, yeah in, in in the land where you live how empowering would that be for children exactly it's, that's really meaningful for children and and i'm you know i'm very focused on children i do a lot of singing work with with children i'm I'm very, you know, devoted to singing with children, helping them develop their individual voices and their creativity. And, you know, when you spend a lot of time with children and when you remember very clearly, as I do, what it means to be a child and how you feel about things, you know, there is no, there is no doubt of, of, about how important this knowledge is to young people and to tiny people. It's really important. It shapes how you think about yourself. It shapes how you feel about yourself. I would have been so much more, I would have felt so much more confident and assured really deep down inside if I had known about my black ancestors in the UK. Honestly, I would. Mm -hmm. Do you feel the same way about, about um, Cornish history? Um, or lack thereof in schools. <laughs> Not so much. I think um, um, I, I, what I feel is if I knew more of British history and Cornish history, that I could, I could have had the opportunity to challenge structures mm. um, earlier in my life that maybe a lot like maybe I would have then been living in a different society that um, that uh, was perhaps more balanced yeah, <laughs> than, yeah. than the one in which we do live. Um, it, I was um, another great podcast guest um, who grew up in Cornwall and is a, a woman of colour. Mm -hmm spoke 
about, we spoke about our relationship with land and um, I felt that a great gift for me was growing up in Cornwall in a place where I feel that I'm physically of the land and, and it's within me. And um, she very rightly and generously pointed out that um, some of the experience that she had had of not being, of being questioned about her right to that yeah. belonging yeah. and place. Yeah. And um, I'm very, so I am, I'm quite mindful of the privilege I have in that. Yeah, you're very lucky to have that. You're very lucky to have that because I've always felt a really strong connection and relationship with land and nature, um, particularly the land here in these islands. I, I, I have a real love for it, which transcends and overrides all the times that I've been told I don't belong here, wherever I go. Um, I'm a, there's a group called Black Girls Hike, which I'm a member of, which mm. is specifically for women of colour going walking in the countryside because you get funny looks, people don't expect to see you there. Mm -hmm. People associate you with cities or with you know, crime or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know what, the land doesn't tell you to go home. Mm. Land is very accepting. Mm -hmm. um, it's a... I, I know many people of colour who have the same relationship with nature and with land. Yeah. In terms of um, Cornish black history, or black history Cornwall, um, there's so much more there than, than people in general are aware of, and of course I include myself in this. Um, and one of the amazing things that I learned, which which really took me back was um, I was talking to an expert on Joseph Emedy who had spent a lot of time researching him and it turned out that Joseph Emedy was um, witness at his friend's wedding and his friend was married in Mabe Church and his friend was also a black man and he was described because because this is this is one of one of the ways that we can we can find um, black people in historic records is is because they are sometimes described as a quote Negro of the parish or something, mm -hmm. but their blackness is somehow referenced in, in official records. So this was a wedding, so it's referenced in official records. So Joseph Emily was present at the wedding of his friend, another black man, who was marrying a white, I believe, Cornish woman. There would have been children of colour in the local school in Mabe. Mm -hmm. Isn't that mind-blowing? Yeah. So think about how much more there is there that we don't know about yet. Totally. That's what it is. So yeah, yeah. Every time I find out one of these things, I think, oh my goodness, like there is so much more here than we know because we only know about the black ancestors for whom there are concrete records in some way. There may have been so, well, there will have been so very many more who weren't recorded. When we think about all, all the people... And all about um, poor white people who were not recorded, who went through through their whole lives without ever being officially recorded because they were poor or or because they couldn't write or for for so many different reasons, um, people who have been buried and there's no grave and there's no record that they were ever even there. So this is this is the case also when you're looking for black history. You're looking for 
people who often were not officially recorded. And because of that, we can know that there will be so much more there than, than we know already. So um, we're coming to time. It's been lovely speaking with you in this way, Angela. Oh, Thank you. Um, so before we go, I just wanted to touch back to this notion of like storytelling mm. and oral histories and traditions. Um, I'm, I'm neurodivergent in a few different ways. and We've spoken about this. And um, I sometimes feel, um, so for instance, in relation to the Cornish language, I would love to speak more Cornish. Um, I really struggle with learning a language in a sort of uh, traditional way that languages are taught, um, going through grammar and such like. However, by picking things up in more of a kind of casual oral way connecting it with perhaps manual tasks mm. and just using the odd word here and there I find that really powerful and um, I don't necessarily have to remember exact spellings yeah. but I can sort of feel it kind of bodily and that becomes part of my storytelling and I become mm. sort of more confident as as like in my cultural identity um and then just linking that to, like, I came to the Birch Tree Folk Choir with you yeah. for a while, which is wonderful. And what I really loved about that is, like, um, we had a conversation at that time about singing, who can sing, who can't sing. And we shared a feeling that everybody can sing, people sound differently. <laughs> and um, uh, I've got to say, you know, I don't have a, a, a joyous singing voice, but it brings me great joy. And singing yes. in that space and learning that in, in, in that space, you didn't give us song sheets with words. Mm. You had us learning these um, orally and they became sort of body knowledge and something about like that space is utterly joyful and um, yeah, so I wondered if you could just say a bit about that, I suppose, connected to that, that fate tradition, maybe. Yeah, that's, that, that's, I'm so interested in everything you say there. And I'm so happy that you loved the choir. There will be more. <laughs> I will be running more Birch Tree Folk Choir sessions. <laughs> so look out for those. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't tend to provide lyric sheets when I'm leading choirs or singing workshops. And there's many reasons for that. The main reason is that people tend to look down at the sheet instead of at the other people in the group or at me. And I use um, like I use my hands when I'm teaching a melody to give an idea of the intervals. So I really need people in the group to be watching when, what my hands are doing. One hand shows the intervals of the melody. One hand shows the rhythm, and that's 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 the way I teach. So so I do find that it it tends to kind of take people out of the space um, in a way. Obviously they're, they're right there and, and listening, but um, it's really difficult if I can't engage with people's eyes. And second of all, as, as you made reference to, the um, in terms of folk song, there's a very powerful oral tradition. And before, before any song 
is collected, it has a it has a long history of having been passed from person to person, uh, orally and hourly. Uh, so it becomes that body knowledge, and so that's what I really wanted, want wanted and want to keep going in terms of the Birch Tree Folk Choir is to preserve that tradition of 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 um, exchanging uh, songs and stories orally and, and you learn it in your body. It's very interesting because I am also neurodivergent but in different ways. I really like words of my friends. So when I'm learning a language, I like to be able to see the word in my head. That helps me to remember it. Um, and it is, it's very important, isn't it, for people who aren't neurodivergent to, to remember that neurodivergence is so varied and individual I like to see the words in my head. I recently started to learn Gaelic, which is the language of my dad's family. And the, the last fluent Gaelic speaker was my great aunt, Mary, my dad's aunt. And she was so lovely and really loving. I had sort of a very special relationship with her. And she used to sing to me in Gaelic when I was very little. Um, so it's really important for me to learn that. On, on the other side, I have, I will never know where my African ancestors came from. I will never know. They were abducted. They were brutally trafficked. I have no idea where they came from, and I, I am pretty sure I, there's no way for me to find out. Although I might, I'm very tempted to do one of those DNA tests. <laughs> I would really like to know. But you see, th this is why. This is why I feel so like almost envious of people, people like you who have a relationship to your Cornish identity, which. First of all, you know, you, 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 you can be sure that you belong to this land and this land belongs to you. Um, and, and also you have a relationship to the language, you can trace it, you know where your family comes from. Um, and for, yeah, for my enslaved ancestors, I, 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 I can't, I, I can't get anywhere close to that mm. knowledge and that it's a really sorrowful feeling, um, which so many of us share. Mm. The people of, of the African diaspora who are descended from enslaved ancestors, we, we share this. might not make sense, but it doesn't need to for me. It's just something that is, is my truth. I feel really connected and a sense of belonging when I'm with trees or swimming in the sea or, mm -hmm. or walking along a beach or something. That's when I feel most, most connected to the life of the world and to to place and it doesn't have to do with my DNA actually it has to do with it has to do with the accepting nature of land of the land and of nature hmm hmm that's um that's a really lovely um experience to have and um thank you for sharing Thank you for having me. <laughs> My it's pleasure. So to chat to you. <laughs> Miraz, Agas Gosloas. Thank you for listening. <coughs> Further episodes of the Mescla Bruyon Druis podcast can be found on my website, sovaberryman.co.uk. That's S O V A Y. B-E-R-R-I-M-A-N dot co dot UK where you'll also find guest biographies and a resource page of links to further reading on the topics discussed.
If you feel inspired to join the Mescla conversation about contemporary Cornish cultural identity, please get in touch with me, Save Berryman, via my website or social media. You'll find Mescla Bruyon Drews on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. The Mescla Bruyon Drews podcast and project has been made possible due to a wealth of in-kind help and support from many parties, including the Wenda Perrin Festival, Gorseth Kernay, Cornwall Council's Cornish Language Office, Coethys and Yeath Canuick, Crescent Kernay, Cornwall Neighbourhoods for Change and Falmouth University Falmouth Campus. The project has been supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England and further funding has been gratefully received from Historic England by Redreath Unlimited. Agas Terman, Agas Grellas. Thank you for your time. See you later.